All right, so this morning I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to do another message from the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'll probably journey back to our book of Jeremiah. So before we get there, why don't we stand and we're going to pray this morning. So Father... I just want to thank you today for uh, the people that have just become part of our church family as members. I thank you for those that are with us here week by week, those that are watching online. And I just pray, Father, that you'll speak profoundly into our lives today as we look at a life worth living. And Father, we believe that you've given us life, you've given us eternal life, and you've given us a valuable life. And now I pray, Lord, that we would uh, safeguard this life. It's a gift. But Lord, we can easily become distracted by the challenges and the temptations that surround our lives, especially in a North American context where there's a lot of things to distract us. So I pray today that you will speak profoundly, powerfully into our hearts and lives, that you will speak words of reassurance, words of encouragement, words of comfort, words of correction, words of conviction. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen, you may be seated. Haddon Robinson, who's a very well-known preacher, tells a story of a missionary in Africa by the name of Dan Crawford. This, this happened eons ago, okay? So when I tell you the story, you'll see why it happened so long ago. It was a time before what we call the modern conveniences of life, and so he was returning from Africa by boat. That gives you a clue. This is not a recent story. And so as they were traveling from the inner part of the country where he was laboring this missionary, he decided to bring some of the people that he had led to Christ. Some of them now became co-laborers with him and were traveling to the coast. And as they were walking, Crawford was telling his friends about the glories that were in the cities on the coast of Africa. Actually, they had some of the modern conveniences. He told them about light that didn't have a flame or about wagons that didn't have animals or about storing their food so that it wouldn't spoil. And as he walked and talked, three of the men began to engage with him in the conversation, but the fourth man seemed quite aloof and really unimpressed. And after a few days as they were sitting around the fire, Crawford was a little bit irritated that the fourth guy never entered into the conversation and was wondering, you know, why wasn't he impressed by the things he was talking about? And he said to him, aren't you eager to get there? I mean, don't you want to see all the things that I've been telling you about? And the man said, well, uh, Reverend Crawford, to be better off is not to be better. Well, that's an interesting statement. To be better off doesn't mean you become a better person. The measure of a person's life is not determined by what he acquires, but rather what he passes on to those around him. So it's not about getting, it's about giving. You know, so often, uh, even in pastoring the church, you know, sometimes people would say to me, well, what do I get out of this? And I always come back with, it's an opportunity to do this. And it's usually, it's an opportunity to give. It's an opportunity to serve. And isn't that really what the Christian life is all about? We've already received all that we could possibly get when Christ made himself known in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit that you and I have a gift called salvation. What more could we ask for? We have everything going. We have everything that we need for, for, for life and godliness. We should be overjoyed by the good thing that God has done for us in giving us his son. What we gain from God and pass on to others is really the test of a godly life. And in Jesus preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, and I tell you, it's really a, you know, we've, we've probably read it, we've really heard the Beatitudes a lot, but 
When Jesus was actually speaking this message, in his hour, this was a very radical message. It was shocking, some of the things he said. Because Jesus talks about the cost of genuine discipleship. And I really believe today, if we really thought about what the true cost of discipleship is, we would be shocked. Because what God requires of you and I is all of us. He gives us everything, but he requires everything from us when you think about it. So there's a cost and a commitment to following Jesus Christ. In contrast to the hypocritical approach towards righteous living in his day, Jesus is now challenging his followers and true of every generation with some of the other subtle spiritual battles that come against our heart. And how many know that right now we're engaged in a tremendous spiritual battle? In these texts, Jesus is addressing the issue of worldliness and idolatry. And I would say that in North America, we're struggling with these things. You know, we could actually see worldliness, yeah, I get that one, but idolatry? You know, but sometimes idolatry is far more subtle than we realize, because idolatry is those things that we're putting ahead of God in our lives. And you know, sometimes with all the things and distractions we have in our world today, it it lends itself to that in an affluent culture. What is worldliness but an attitude that's reflected by a warped affection for this world's values in place of God's values? In our society, we can see that. Terrible value system, often. The Bible actually reveals three areas where the spiritual battle is being revealed against the believer. You know, John writes about it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we have three areas we have to be concerned about. The world is happening around us. The flesh is what's happening in us. And then we have a spiritual foe called Satan and his emissaries. And we're battling on three fronts. That's a lot. Here Jesus is focusing in on the world. And he gives us three pictures of the conflict, three metaphors to help us understand the nature of the battle and calling us to an undivided loyalty to his kingdom and the values of his kingdom. And I believe it's a life worth living. So I want to take a look at three things that are going to reveal, three pictures that are going to reveal to us a life worth living. And the first one is a metaphor. Jesus is going to use three metaphors here. The first is a metaphor of a treasure. Treasures are what? Treasures are those people, those times, or those things that you and I put value on. It's what we keep. It's what we store up. It's what we, you know, focus in on. It's what captures our hearts. Jesus, in dealing with the main objective in our hearts and lives, he's kind of focusing on what's driving us. D.A. Carson says, for the things we treasure actually govern our lives. What we value tugs at our minds and emotions. It consumes our time with planning, daydreaming, and an effort to achieve. What is it that we're pursuing after? You ever thought about it? How are we, you know, when we talk about Uh, values, when we talk about priorities, you know, people say to me sometimes, I I don't have time. Really what we're saying is I have a different priority. Isn't that true? That's all we're saying. You know, we have to sit down and think about it. We make time for what we think are important to us. That becomes priority. That defines our values. That actually is helping us filter into our minds what we consider our treasure is. Jesus is going to talk about treasure here in Matthew chapter 6. Have our hearts truly been captured by the love and grace of Christ? Or are we still pursuing what this world is offering us? It's a question I'm going to raise 
in this message today. In Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I want you to notice the order there. You know, wherever your treasure is, your heart follows it. It's very fascinating. So whatever I make as a treasure, that's where I'm going. I have to decide in my mind. It's a, it's a priority. It's a decision we're going to make here today. What will be my treasure so that my heart moves toward it? When I invest in my treasure, my time, energies, my love, my heart's going to move towards that. Jesus is warning us. This is actually a warning, isn't it? He's saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's making us Make a choice. He's talking about our loyalty. F.W. Filson, writing regarding this concept, says, if a man divides or a woman divides their interest and tries to focus on both God and possessions, he has no clear vision and will live without clear orientation or direction. A life not focused on God's claim and command is lost in spiritual darkness. So God is, in a sense, giving us this opportunity to make a choice. He's he's leaving it up to us. And so I think there are several ways that a person could easily misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, because people have. I mean, what does it mean when Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth? Well, the first is that we ought to give up all that we have of our earthly wealth. Some people have done that, you know. Think of Francis of Assisi, just gave up everything, right? He took that command literally, just did it. You know, a person reads that we're not to store up, and immediately we think, I gotta get rid of it all. Is that really what Jesus is talking about? Because we know that there are other parables that teach the proper use of earthly wealth. What Jesus is saying is that we don't make the acquiring of earthly goods our goal. There's the difference. This is not our ambition in life. You know, we should have a different ambition. It's not about how much we're gonna acquire now of earthly possessions. The goal in life is not to become millionaires. That's what Jesus is saying. That's not our goal. Our goal is to get to know God better. Our goal is to make sure that God is the treasure in our lives and we're pursuing God. And in the meantime, God will allow us to acquire certain things on earth, maybe to care for our families, provide for our future retirement. I don't think those things are wrong. The Bible teaches us to plan. So he's not against planning. And we see that. What he's against is that you and I are planning to live a life apart from God. That we are creating an earthly security so that we don't need God's help. That somehow that's what we're trying to do. Another misconception is that we totally ignore the warning and we begin to store up a whole bunch of earthly things and these treasures begin to blind our hearts and minds from spiritual pursuits. Has that ever happened to people where they've actually chosen the things of this world over the things of God? Yeah, of course. How about the rich young ruler? Jesus says, leave everything, come follow me, and he couldn't do it. You know, isn't it interesting? Jesus said to him, you know, he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the rich young ruler, uh, he asked that question to Jesus. Jesus says, keep all the commands. He says, I've done that since my youth. Did he really do all of those things since his youth? When you think about when Jesus said, leave everything, follow me, isn't the greatest command is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
So really, was he keeping the greatest command? I don't believe so. I think Jesus put his finger on the, point, the problem. God was not first in his life. And Jesus will do that to us. The Spirit of God will do this, put his finger in our soul and say, am I really first in your life? That's a a challenging question. And we can answer that question, not flippantly, but take a look at how we're spending our energy, how we're spending our resources, how we're spending our time. Those are the things that are indicating to us what our treasure is. We have to take a hard look at that. Our response to uh, losing earthly things could tell us a lot about how attached we are to things. As a matter of fact, this fourth century monk named Marcarius, one day he was returning to his monastic cell to discover a thief was stealing the few possessions he owned. His reaction was very calm. He even helped the thief load the donkey with the objects from his cell. As the thief departed, Marcaris said, Naked I came from my mother's room, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, the thief took it away, but you know, he's just seeing it as an agency of God. Marcaris may not be a literal model for us, especially those who own possessions for the sake of family and loved ones, but his freedom towards his possessions, that they come from the Lord, that they'd be taken away without any effect on his disposition. It's surely an attitude that all Christians should strive to imitate. Isn't that true? How do we handle losses in our lives? You know, what happens if, you know, we've had moments in, in time, maybe the stock market goes down and we've maybe borne significant losses? Or, you know, could you imagine living in the Second World War and you're in Europe and all of a sudden your nation is invaded? How about the people in Ukraine? You lose everything in a moment. Everything you've spent a lifetime acquiring is gone. How do you handle that? If you're a real child of God, you go, well, guess what? I still have Jesus. I still have eternal life. I'm still moving towards my ultimate goal. Yes, the things of this world that made life maybe enjoyable, but they were not my goal. But can you imagine when that's your treasure and it's gone? How are you going to respond to that? With despair? Those are the questions that tell us where we're really at. So Jesus also in the parable of the sower and the seed warns against earthly goods becoming the object of our attention and affection. He says, still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. How fruitful is your life? How has God's word so impacted you that it shaped the decisions you've made and you have become a fruitful follower of Jesus Christ and you know you can see the development of spiritual growth in your life. You can see the fruit of the spirit at work in your life. You can see that you have become less focused on yourself and more focused on other people. Those are all things that we should be evaluating. How then are we responding to earthly wealth? And by the way, if you don't think we're wealthy, this corridor between Edmonton and Calgary, one of the most wealthy places on the planet. So we are living in extreme affluence, folks. We can utilize them as a tool for greater heavenly purposes. We can invest. You know, when we give, think about this. When we give to the kingdom of God, we're investing in something that's eternal in nature. You know, a number of years ago, God spoke into our lives as a congregation. We built an orphanage in India. What a great investment. You know, I just, I, I, you know, our missions committee said, Paul, could you 
talk to Dr. Thomas and have him send a whole bunch of pictures here for, you know, we're making a missions report for a congregation's annual report. And you know, it was so beautiful. I'm looking at all these pictures. And literally, we actually support 107 orphans from our congregation every single month. Isn't that beautiful? I love it, you know? And what's really encouraging is a lot of these young people now are maturing and now they're feeling called to go in ministry. Uh, you, don't, you and I don't even realize the kind of eternal investments we're making. It's so beautiful. I love it. This is what it's about, folks, that we're investing in the work of God all over the world. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like if that rich young ruler had said yes to Jesus instead of no? Ever wondered about that? Well, we have an example of such a life. In the early 1700s, there was a young and devoted count by the name of Nicholas Zinzendorf. Some of you may be acquainted with him. And he was traveling in Europe when he came to the art museum in Dusseldorf where he saw the Domenico's work of Christ entitled, Behold the Man. And there's a portrait, actually, of the thorn-crowned Jesus, and there was an inscription written below the, the art, and it says, I have done this for you, what have you done for me? And Zinzendorf said to himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. And from now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And what did he do? He opened up his estate and allowed a lot of pietistic Christians to begin to live with him. And they began the formation of a community called the Moravians. And if you know anything of their history, it's really amazing. And Herman Hutt, they actually started a prayer meeting that continued for 100 years. They began to send out missionaries. It was really powerful. And within 10 years, more than 70 Moravian missionaries from a community of not more than 600 inhabitants answered the call. And within, fewer than, uh, within 30 years, no fewer than 226 missionaries had been sent out. The early Moravians were, for the most part, People of little or no formal education. But that was no great hindrance because what they lacked in you know, training, they made up for in piety and in passion. When they went out with their wives and their little ones, uh, they were on their own to prepare to live, die, and be buried in the land of their adoption. So what could, what, what you know, missiologist Herbert Cain says, their amazing success was due to two strong convictions. Number one, that world evangelization is the prime obligation of the church. Can I stop there for a minute and ask the question, is it still the prime responsibility of the church to go make disciples of all peoples? Isn't that the Great Commission? And isn't that, isn't that for each one of us to hear that call ourselves? Each one of us individually needs to hear that. And number two, that this obligation is the personal responsibility of every member of the Christian community. Wow. No wonder these guys really went out. I remember watching years ago kind of a documentary film of two young Moravians, and they left and went to the Caribbean somewhere, and they went to a, a, an estate where they were slaves. And the owners wouldn't let them on to evangelize the slaves. You know what these two guys did? They said, you know what? Because Christ died for us and gave his life for us, we're going to give our lives for him. And they indentured themselves to become slaves so that they could work on that island and bring the gospel to the slaves. That's commitment, folks. Some of us go, I don't know if I'd do that. But these guys did, and it made a difference. Jesus points out the dangers with earthly treasures. They can deteriorate over time or be stolen. 
Either way, there's a sense of loss. The tragedy is what am I giving my life towards? Is it something temporal and can be easily taken from us? You know, the preacher of Ecclesiastes uh, said this, and he's pointing out the dangers here. The construction, remember the book starts out, you know, Solomon, some people think it's Solomon, different scholars argue, but that's not the point. Whoever the author is, I think it's Solomon. He's got all of these amazing things he's able to do, great building projects. He has terrific work ethics, talks about having all the people he wants, sex, reputation, power, various philosophies, and then he dismisses each of them as vanity and a striving after the wind. So he's kind of negating all the things that normal people are chasing after. Dr. Harold Dressler says, and he translates the word vanity not to mean that these things are equally useless, but that all of these things are transient. In other words, they're vain in the sense that they're non-enduring. They're temporary. You know, are we living our lives in vain? Are we living our lives for that which is temporal? That's the question that Jesus is really raising in this whole point. That's the thing we need to ask ourselves. Are we living for what's eternal? What will never end, never fade, never perish? We're actually living for the treasures in heaven, that which you know, we will eventually, amazingly enough, be rewarded for. Wealth is therefore not to be eliminated on principle, but rather used according to the needs of the hours. Matter of fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 9, make friends for yourself of the means of unrighteous mammon. Remember that? He told us to do that. In other words, use what God's given you to advance the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. He says the problem, of course, as Clement well knows, Clement was an early, uh, early Christian, is that those who seek to use wealth for good ends so often become not its master, but its slave. Isn't that the truth? I mean, who controls what here? And that's the challenge, isn't it? As it says in Luke 13, 22, the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the seed. Bernard of Clairvaux, a middle-aged monk, wrote this of the rich man in Matthew 19. He did not own his possessions, they owned him. And if he had owned them, he could have been free of them. So according to Clement, what is demanded of the faithful is neither ascetic renunciation nor uh, acceptance of a communistic ideal, but freedom for obedience. That is the freedom to do what God wishes, what he orders, and what he indicates. The rich typically do not have such freedom, whence the hyperbole, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The so-called perfect, however, do, not have, do have such freedom, for while they neither hate wealth nor love poverty, they are profoundly indifferent toward worldly goods. And such indifference generated by a consuming love for God and spiritual things enables them to do what the rich man could not, namely respond in wholehearted obedience to the demands of Christ. Let me move on to the second, a little shorter metaphor. We're going to look at the eye. The eye is the avenue which light comes into the body. Do you know when your eyes are not functioning, you're in the dark. You can't see. You can't take in what's around you. And Jesus is talking about a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye, or a good eye and a bad eye. And he utilizes this idea and challenges our spiritual vision. So it's all about vision now. 
Matthew 6, says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy or bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this adjective translated healthy in other translations, good, is a little perplexing. Actually, the word used in the Septuagint, you say, what's the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, it means to be singleness of purpose, undivided in loyalty. And that's why the King James Version translates it, he who has a single eye rather than a divided eye. Okay, the good eye, or as we've seen, the single eye is the one fixed on God, unwavering in its gaze, constant in its fixation. You know, I, I, will, I would say it this way. If we we're going to use a contemporary phrase, you know, you can, you can contemporize the Bible and really connect with it. You could say uh, that what Jesus is questioning is where, where is your vision? Where are you getting your light from? What are you focused in on? What are you fixated in on? And, you know, in a, you could say it this way to, to Jesus. I only have eyes for you. See, if you said that to someone, what are you basically saying? I'm not seeing anybody else but you. You're the focus of my affection. You're the focus of my interest. I only have eyes for you. Isn't that kind of what Jesus wants from us, that we could say to him, I only have eyes for you. I don't see all the rest of the stuff because I'm locked in. I have a vision of what you want me to be about. You know, I remember telling the story in a wedding once, I read it somewhere, where a prince was captured by an enemy king and he was brought before the king and his whole family was captured with him. And so the king says, what will you give me if I release you? And he said, half my wealth. And if I release your children, everything I possess. And if I release your wife, well, your majesty, for her, I would give myself. The king was so moved by his devotion to his family, he freed them all. And as they were returning home, the prince said to his wife, wasn't the king a handsome man? And with a look of deep love toward her husband, she said, I didn't notice. I could keep my eyes only on the one who was willing to give himself for my sake. And shouldn't that be true of us about Jesus? That our eyes should be on the one who's given himself for our sake? One picture of someone who could fit the category of an eye that lacked signalness of purpose was Lot's wife. As they were fleeing Sodom after being warned not to look back, she turned around and became what? A pillar of salt. They were warned not to look back. And Sodom is really a picture of our world. It's a world ready to be judged. It's a world on the brink of destruction. It's a world that's in rebellion against God. So how can we say we love this that God hates and is about to destroy? Challenging. The question that we must ask ourselves is, where is my heart in all of this? We cannot live for two worlds, though we live in two worlds. The issue is always one of our heart. That which captures our affections determines our destiny. Let me move on to the final picture. It's the metaphor of slavery. You ever thought about it? What does it mean to be a slave? Well, simply put, a slave is a person who is in bondage. They're not free. It's someone that's trapped in a way of life that they're unable to get away from. And there are many people today that are actually slaves. They're slaves to their addictions, they're slaves to many things in this world. Whatever we give ourselves ultimately to ultimately enslaves us. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to God. 
but we are in a state of slavery. What we are enslaved in then determines and defines our lives. We can become a slave to a person, a passion, an addiction. The idea of serving more than one master is actually a myth. Jesus destroys the illusion when he says we cannot do both. Listen to how he closes this section of the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the King James Version, it's translated mammon. We cannot serve God or live for earthly gains. Moses literally had warned the people before they went into the promised land. Remember these words. This is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, it's interesting. You read in Exodus, God's law is being read there, right? Then you read it again in Deuteronomy. Why is that? Because 40 years has elapsed and a new generation has arisen. We have to remind ourselves continuously of what God expects of us. Otherwise, we forget. Moses is now speaking to this new generation, going into the land, and he says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. In other words, be thankful for what you have, but be careful. And can I say that today? It's true for us. We should always be grateful for what God has given us. That's contentment. But then we should also be careful. Why? that you do not forget the Lord your God. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about what does it mean to forget God. Forgetting God doesn't mean we have amnesia and we don't know that God exists. What it means is we no longer have intimacy with God and we're not doing what he's asking. We're forgetting. It says, do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Forgetting God means I'm living a life of disobedience. I'm not doing what God's asking me to do. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases and all you have is multiplied. In other words, when you become affluent, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, I was just sharing with the men that were praying with me this morning. You know, Canada was a different country in the 1950s. I know that's 70 years ago, but think about it. 65% of all Canadians attended church weekly. Today, less than 15%. It was a different generation. The fear of God was in many people's hearts. There was a deep, more deeply devoted society. Canada was sending missionaries all over the world. Today, we are the mission field, and God is sending the missionary converts back to Canada to help us regain our footing in our own land. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's the mercy of God, by the way. I believe that. A careful look at the history of the nation of Israel realizes they forgot God. They became affluent and forgot God. Canada became affluent, and she has forgotten God. Now, I know that you're the exception, but it's true. It's tragic. You know, when you look at the reasons for the Assyrian captivity and later the Babylonian captivity... What had happened? They had succumbed to their pleasures and the pressures of our world. They had, become to, they had begun to worship the gods and the idols of the people and the land in which they had conquered. Remember, Elijah the prophet pointed out to them, they were trying to serve both God and the idols. Remember, Jesus said it's impossible to do that. You can't do that. Then you remember what Elijah said to them. 
He went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. They had nothing to say. And we all know what happened. The great test on Mount Carmel. And eventually the people fell down and said, Yahweh is God. Remember that? Powerful moment. Idolatry is the worship of anyone or anything other than God. The Apostle Paul describes it as a strong desire, that which we're coveting after. In Colossians, he says it this way, put to death, therefore. Who's responsible to do this? He's writing to believers, put to death. What does that mean? You and I are to mortify some things in our lives. You and I are to say no to some things in our lives. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? It's idolatry. Paul was writing to believers, warning them, showing them and us our responsibility to address these issues in our lives. We must set our affections on things above. You know, we just finished three days of prayer and fasting. And on Monday night, I shared from the book of Zephaniah. And I was so struck with the idea that God is calling us to seek him and to inquire of him. But that's just not, you know, just certain seasons in the church life. Shouldn't it be my uh, direction in my everyday life that I'm inquiring of God, that I'm seeking God, that I'm endeavoring to hear from God every single day so that I can walk in his ways and have wisdom and discernment and understanding of how I should behave in that day and have the wisdom to deal with the challenges I will be faced with that day? Of course. Warren Worsby says, Jesus made it clear that a right attitude towards wealth is the mark of true spirituality. The Pharisees were covetous and used religion to make money. Hmm, wonder if that still happens today. If we have the true righteousness of Christ in our lives, then we will have a proper attitude towards material wealth. Nowhere did Jesus magnify poverty or criticize the legitimate getting of wealth. He never spoke against it. God made all things, including food, clothing, and precious metals. God declared that all things he'd made are good. And he knows that we need certain things in order to live. We read that in Matthew 6, 32. I spoke on that two weeks ago. In fact, he has given us richly all things to enjoy. Some of us like that verse. I'm thankful it's there. I think God says, yeah, you can enjoy life. It's not wrong to possess things, but it is wrong for things to possess us. There's the problem. And there are many warnings in the Bible against covetousness. Joseph Stoll said, the real point of materialism is not how much we have, but what has us if it has us. And it's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold it. It's not what we have, but how we got it. So the test of materialism is whether our goods have made us proud or grateful, self-sufficient or God-sufficient. Now I want to just close with a little story. Uh, German pastor and theologian Helmut Tilika tells the story of a child who stuck her hands in a jar. Very expensive vase. And the parents were trying to get her hands out, but they couldn't get her hands out, right? Little child. Finally, after much wailing and carrying on and all the rest of it, they broke the vase so they could get the child's hand out of it. And what they found was the reason why she couldn't get her hands out, she had her hands clasped. And in her hands, when they opened it up, was a paltry penny. So they destroyed this expensive vase to get a hold of one penny or the child did anyway, had no idea of the value of what she was holding. How many know that's a picture of our approach so often in life? 
When we choose to serve the wrong master, we forfeit what's of great value and end up gaining the trifles of this life. Let's stand. A life worth living. We can live for, you know, basically this temporal world that's fleeting, or we can decide to say, you know what? I'm going to live for that which is eternal. How many know this life goes by by very quickly? The best life is the one that's walking in obedience to God. It brings greater joy, brings greater hope, greater peace. You know, God does take care of us. That's what happens. But when we choose the wrong kind of life, we struggle and suffer like crazy. The true measure of your life is not how much you're gonna acquire. The true measure of the value of who you are as a person is what you are giving, not what you were receiving. And maybe today God's just challenging us. Just take a hard look at where we're living. Because, you know, we're living in a time right now where people are freaking out. Inflation, the economy, all those kinds of things. Can I just tell us right now as a child of God, God will take care of you. David reminds us from the Psalms, I've never seen the righteous begging, nor a seed begging for bread. There have been far worse economic times even in this country than there are right now. So what am I telling us today? That you and I need to look up and we need to live for that which is eternal and not temporal. So with every head bowed this morning, I believe the Spirit of God is trying to speak into your lives and trying to reprioritize our focus. How am I spending my time? How am I spending my energy? How am I spending the resources that God's blessed me with? Maybe we need to reevaluate those things and say, Lord, is my priority your kingdom? And the only way I can tell is the way I'm exerting these other three things in my life. Is this my priority over here? Is that my treasure? Can I tell you, when you make God your treasure, everything flows towards it. I can tell you that's happened in my life. You just can't help yourself. Your time is going there. Your resources are going there. Everything's moving in that direction. It's a good direction to go in. You won't, you won't be sad at the end of the day. I can guarantee you. It's the right decision. Let's just open our hearts to God today. Lord, let's lift our hands to him right now. Lord, would you help me today? If there be anything in my life that's impeding what you want to accomplish, help me, Lord, to have my treasure set on things above, not on things below. Help my affections to be set on things above, not the things below. Free me, Lord, from the slavery of the things of this world. And help me, Lord, to truly be your slave, a love slave, knowing that I'm living for eternity. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.